Hey church, happy uh, 37th anniversary. We praise God for 37 years of God's goodness and grace to FCBC Walnut. And given that it's our church's anniversary, it's only fitting that we begin by reviewing our church's vision. We haven't done this for a long time, so I'm not going to have you stand. <laughs> it's not scripture, but I do want us to recite it together. Even I had to go back and review it to make sure that I had all the words right because we've given you shortened versions of it. We've given you the four indicators, but let's read it together. Okay, I'll lead us. To glorify God by being a vibrant church of disciple makers driven by a passion for God's word, God's family, and God's world that reproduces vibrant churches locally and globally. And I know that along the years, in the, in the past three or four years, uh, a lot of people have asked, what does a vibrant church look like? What does it mean to be a vibrant church of disciple makers? And so we came up with the four indicators that many of you who have been with us pre-COVID that you'll remember. And so uh, this, we want to love passionately, live authentically, give generously, and go courageously. And actually in today's message, you'll see the call for us to live passion, to love passionately. Our brothers and sisters across the globe to live authentically in our discipleship, to give generously if God enables us to, and to go courageously into our calling, into our neighborhoods, and to reach out to our community. But as we celebrate 37 years of worship in Christ, and we're able to worship for 37 years in freedom and peace, it's hard not to think about our Christian brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Last week I was on vacation, but I was able to watch a lot of, a lot of what happened unfold on TV, to read articles, and I just thought what we're witnessing right now in a single leader is the face of evil. While we pray for Ukraine, we always have to remember to pray also for Russians as well. There are Russian Christians who are just as appalled and heartbroken by this war as you are. In fact, on March 3rd, Christianity Today put out an article about hundreds, hundreds of Russian pastors who are opposing the war. And these hundreds of Russian pastors represent many more Russian evangelicals who oppose the war. They are standing in solidarity with Ukrainians, especially fellow Christians. You see, what we need to remember, I finally can do this. I asked permission from the RTF. Can I talk to, you know, I used to move around a lot when I talked to you, but now I'm stuck to my notes behind there. But remember this, nations, wars, kings cannot divide the blood-bought fellowship that you and I share in Christ. Cannot divide. Politics, wars, at the end of the day, there's something different. There are Russian Christians, American Christians, and Ukrainian Christians that we have been given a regenerate heart. And we share the same Holy Spirit that has sealed our hearts. And because of that, by the grace of God, when one part of the body hurts, we can try to continue with life as normal, and we ought to do what God has called us to do, but we cannot help but to hurt as well. And when we witness pastors, we read about pastors in the early weeks. <laughs> I was on vacation. 
while I read about pastors and the invasion hadn't reached their city yet, and so they were writing sermons as their churches were still gathering. And as some of, imagine being a pastor, and you know, pastors or a church leader or Sunday school teacher, and so what do you do? You give freedom to each member. So some members, it's best for the women and the children to flee. So you're ministering to some people leaving, and there's some pastors going that way. Some of your people, the men, are standing up in alignment with Romans 13 to defend the civil goodness. And so they're bearing arms, civilians taking up arms, while others are hiding in shelters. And so if you're a Christian, you're ministering, caring, maybe in fear, maybe in distress. And and I look at it, the blessing that we have, that we send our kids to Sunday school, and we are worried if our kids get sick, But we aren't worried that a missile is going to come and hit us. That's just not something we worry about. And so it puts a lot of what we do today here into perspective. So I've entitled our message and pray for me because I'm trying to do two things. I'm trying to celebrate, lead us to celebrate our 37th anniversary by looking forward into what God might be calling us to prioritize as a church But at the same time, I'm trying to help us and shepherd us in light of how do we think biblically about what's happening in Eastern Europe. I've entitled our message today, Global Prayer, Local Witness. Global Prayer, Local Witness. Subtitled, How Praying for the Ukrainian Church Can Impact Our Personal and Community Outreach Here in Walnut. So how what we pray for globally has implications for how we prioritize our personal life and our ministries locally. If you have God's Word, we're going to take a break from the Gospel of John this week. Meet me in Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And as you turn there, I'll remind you once again that if you go to imb.org slash Ukraine, you can... You can pray. There's a prayer guide on how you can be praying for Ukrainian churches and Ukraine as a nation. But you can also give directly online. So if you're into the online giving, that's probably the only way that you can do it. If you want to give through FCBC and you put Ukraine in the memo, that's, you can, we don't have that set up on our touch point. So you have to do that by a physical check. Okay, so just, just to make that clarification, if you're going to write FCBC Walnut donation and you write Ukraine in the memo, that's a physical check. It'll be deposited into a single uh, check that we will, or it'll be consolidated into a single check that we will directly then send to IMB, or we will do it through our online uh, transfer, okay? So, but, so if you want to give online, you have to do it through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, just for clarity. Meet me now in Colossians chapter 4. What, what we're going to see, we're going to look at a couple of verses. In verses 2 to 4, we're going to see how globally, uh, how we can pray globally and by application, how we can pray for the Ukrainians. Then in verses five to six, we're going to see how we can witness locally. Okay. And so what we pray for globally can impact how we live and how we think locally. So the first thing we're going to see is how to pray for Christians globally. Let me read to you verses two to four. Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer. 
being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, why do I say globally? Right? Are we cheating there exegetically? Why do I say globally? It's because Paul wrote the letter of Colossians from prison in Rome. Colossae is located in modern-day Turkey. So you can just pull up a map, and you can look at modern-day Turkey and Rome, Italy, and that's approximately 1,300 miles. 1,300 miles. That's about the distance, if you were to draw a straight line, between Los Angeles and Oklahoma City, approximately. Okay, so between L.A. or Walnut and Oklahoma City. So these two cities aren't exactly on the opposite ends of the globe, but the point of praying for Christians around the world still applies. Paul is literally asking a church of people that are 1,300 miles away to pray for him and his co-workers as they are under distress or under the pressures of prison. Put into perspective, he's asking a church that is worshiping in their Gentile freedom, the Colossian church, to pray for him while he is in prison. So you can see why out of all the passages I chose in particular this text to talk about how we who are worshiping in relative or in peace and in freedom can pray for Ukrainian Christians and pastors who are under distress in Eastern Europe. This passage, the principles apply globally, and that's why we say, how do we pray for Christians globally? You can say, how do we pray for Christians like Paul who are persecuted or in prison? Now, if we jump into the text, the big idea of the whole, whole book of Colossians as a whole is about the supremacy of Christ. So here in chapter 4, we're really talking about how do you apply the supremacy of Christ into the church and into our Christian lives. And so we can see that the supremacy of Christ is upheld in verses 2 to 4 when Christians pray. Not only pray, but he describes how to pray and what to pray for. So look with me now. He, he Again, it says back in verse 2, what we just read, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, this verb continue is an imperative in the original Greek. And all that means is that this word continue, it carries the force of a command. He's exhorting and commanding the Colossian Christians to continue steadfastly in prayer. Some of your translations say devote yourselves to pray, continue in prayer. In other words, pray persistently, keep on praying, don't stop praying. And so as you watch and you hear the news about what's going on in Ukraine, you pray. Think about the global crisis, you pray. As you read uh, Associated Press or Wall Street Journal, I'm trying to give you something that's a little bit more middle line. Pray. Devote yourselves to pray continuously. Don't just read it and go off into your normal day of life. Now, I am not saying that everything that happens in Eastern Europe dictates how you live here because we have responsibilities here. 
We have things to celebrate here, and we should celebrate, like our 37th anniversary. But at the same time, the more you remember to pray for what's happening globally, the more your heart will align with what God is doing globally, and that will impact you in terms of your priorities locally. Don't stop praying. But I, I want to spend time here. Notice how to pray. He says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Two weeks ago, I was in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. It's a different world out there. And, um, and I was at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, with some of the preaching professors and, uh, and this summer, a few of us will be preaching through the book of Colossians uh, at the pastor's conference before the Southern Baptist Convention. And I have to give credit where credit is due, but one of the preaching professors, he, he illustrated how to understand being watchful in prayer with a very common illustration of praying for a friend with cancer and then that cancer not going away and how that changes your prayer. I, I'm just going to translate that into our context a little bit and apply that to Ukraine if you allow me to, but I want to give credit to where credit's due, and this is Professor uh, Dr. Chris Osborne from Southwestern, so give him the credit for the example. But some of you who pray, you understand this. You have a friend who has been diagnosed with cancer, so you pray for them. But the cancer does not take their life immediately. So your, so your initial prayer, it's a good prayer, you say, God, pray for healing, pray for the eradication of the cancer. Who wouldn't pray that way? As the years pass, you're observing, you're being watchful in prayer. And it's clear that God is not answering that specific prayer. So it doesn't mean you stop praying for healing, but you start praying for different things. So you pray, God, will you sustain this person's strength? Will you allow the treatment to be effective? Will you allow minimal side effects? But would you still heal if possible? Then, then you start praying for their family members. And as the time passes and you realize they might pass, you say, Lord, will you give them peace to accept if you're going to take them home? And you might begin to pray for their family members. You see what's happening in your heart? You still believe in God. You still trust God. It's not that you don't believe that He can heal. It's that you've accepted his will, at least what's been revealed. So your initial agenda was heal my friend, and now your agenda is aligning with how God is answering. And if you begin to see your friend saying, you know, Christ in me is to live, to die is to gain, I'm ready to go. And if you see some of their family members come to peace, now you're seeing that this is something that we've experienced in our church. Then you give thanks to God. You did not get to praise God for a healing, but you got to see someone persevere and praise God despite their suffering. And so you become watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. Apply this to Ukraine. On the first day of the invasion, my prayer was, God, stop the invasion. Very quickly, hours early, God, you are not stopping the invasion. So my, my prayer turns Old Testament. I'm just kidding. But, but, but I did say, God, confuse the tanks with, with minimal loss of life, maybe. Some of these Russian soldiers, they might be Christians, and they're forced into this, or they don't know what they're doing, or they're very young. I start praying differently. Protect churches. 
I start praying for the Christian pastors. And as, I, as, as the missiles are coming in, and I still say, God, can you stop this? But it's not stopping. Children are dying. So my prayer changes. And then as I read articles, just the other day, I read a Christianity Today article on entitled Bomb Shelter Ministry. Can you imagine that? And that there are Christians stepping up in the bomb shelters to share the gospel. And as I was watchful and my prayers changed, I became thankful in the boldness and the courage and the faith of Ukrainian Christians. And it impacted me because uh, even yesterday, I'm, I'm complaining about my children not <laughs> listening to me and getting angry. And then very quickly I realized, well, I don't have to say goodbye to my children and send them to, across the border and take up arms. And very quickly, as I, as I look at how hard some of these Christians are working to shepherd their people, it drove me to work even harder on this sermon. Because I don't have the threat, and you don't have the threats of missiles and gunfire. As, as I am praying, my agenda is changing and aligning with God's agenda. I'm being watchful in my prayer. That's how you pray for Ukraine. Your prayer will change. And as you see God work in ways where you weren't asking for, He will change your heart. And I guarantee you, if you pray that way, if you pray that way, it doesn't mean you don't go to work or you don't take care of your kids or you don't pay the bills, but if you continue to watch what God is doing in Ukraine and you pray, it won't matter as much whether the Lakers lose or win, but let me remind you, they beat the Warriors. It won't matter that the Rams won the Super Bowl. Children and women are dying. These things are, are moot. It doesn't matter if you, if you got the, the best sale. You see, you, you think differently. It changes what happens globally. Your global prayers have a local impact if you are being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, go to verse 3 where he says to pray redemptively, and that's exactly how you and I are encouraged to pray for God to open the door for the gospel in Ukraine and in Russia among the soldiers on the front lines with the refugees in the bomb shelters. Notice what Paul says. Go to verse 3. At the same time, pray for us. Who's us? Most likely, it's him, Timothy, Epaphras. But it's basically Paul and a few of his co-workers. Paul was in a Roman prison. So he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, how do we understand these words? He's saying, pray for us that God may open a door for the word. Remember that Paul is a Jew. And he's, some say that he's chained to a Roman soldier. But if this is his first Roman imprisonment, it may have been an easier situation where he was under house arrest, but on 24 watch with Roman soldiers watching him 24 hours a day. And so whoever's with him, if there's other people, then he would have the opportunity. And so he's thinking, what is the mystery of Christ? The mystery of Christ is very simple. It's that the Jewish Messiah is also the Messiah for the Gentiles. It's the mystery that was hidden that, that the Messiah of Israel is not just Israel's Messiah, 
but he is the Messiah to the Gentiles. So he's asking for clarity for the Colossians who are our Gentiles. You guys are Gentiles. You got saved. You believe in the Jewish Messiah. Pray for me that I would somehow have, that God would open the door where I can share with these Roman soldiers and I can share with these Gentiles as a Jew how my Jewish Messiah is also their Messiah. And that's why he's saying that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He's asking for clarity of contextualization that a Jewish Messiah would make sense for the Gentiles. And again, this is so fitting for how we can be praying for Ukrainian Christians, for their hearts to be open to the... I mean, for Ukrainian Christians to have open doors to share the gospel with peoples, peoples whose hearts have been rendered open because of this crisis. Now, I want you just to jump... Look down or jump over to Colossians 4.12. And you see this beautiful example of Epaphras who prays in this way. Who prays in a way where he's watchful and struggling. God does not call us unless for some reason you're, you're, you're military. But God has not called us to go and take up arms to defend freedom but he calls us to a different battle. I want you to see this. Colossians 4.12, here's what it says. Epaphras, who is one of you, he is a minister of the Colossians. He might have been from Colossae, but he's in prison with Paul now. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, and notice, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, Paul could have chose any Greek word. He could have said he's constantly laboring, but he chose always struggling. In the Greek, that's the word agonizomai. And when you hear agonizomai, it's he's agonizing in prayer. Now, what's happening to the Colossians, and I won't get into too much detail for the purposes of our sermon, is that they're facing various forms of heresy. That there's different false views of Christ that are being espoused, and some of them are in the danger of falling into sin and leaving Christ or worshiping a false Christ. And obviously there are other sins, the basic sins that would lead people away from Christ. And so, so this is agony for him. So he's in prison. He's fighting, basically. It is a battle. He is on his knees, struggling on your behalf. How? Not with weapons of warfare, because he understands that our battle is not truly against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of the air. And so he's praying on the behalf of of the Colossians, that they may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. And I think the, the Ukrainian Christians need these types of prayers as well, that we would agonize in our prayers, that we would struggle on their behalf, that in the midst of war and distress and horrible evil, that in ways that we cannot understand in our freedom, that God would supernaturally allow them to stand mature and by the grace of God, we're, we're seeing and reading that they are. That they would stand firm in their faith and that they would be fully assured. And here's where it's hard for me. How do you tell a person that this might be God's will for your life, that he's still good and sovereign as they're losing life? 
and as they're running in danger. But, but, but we can pray that in some way that they would stand mature in their faith and they would be fully assured that God is still good and with them, that this war and everything, in, in, in divine ways that we can't understand, that for the Ukrainian Christian, that this is the will of God for them and that they need not fear. Not that it's good. Not that war is good. But that even in the face of evil, that God is good. Even when life is lost, that God is good. How do you say that to them? I don't know how, but the Ukrainian pastors might know how. So my prayers for them. My prayers for them and, and their leaders. And so this is how we can pray. Pray continuously, being watchful and grateful. And if you're praying for open doors for the gospel, and if your heart is aligned with the agenda of God, once your heart is aligned, you begin to think locally. And this leads us to point number two. But before I go there, I want to make something clear because there's some seminarians in here. And I want to do justice to the text. I want, I want you to know for certain that Paul makes no grammatical connection between the prayer command and the living command. So, there, so basically... There's nothing in the text that says praying results in living, okay? I'm making that connection off of a subordinate concept, which is the concept of evangelism that unites the two. Just to make that clear, these are standalone commands. Pray this way, live this way. Two separate commands. But notice, you will notice that he's praying, he says pray for open doors for evangelism, and then, in verses 5 to 6, he's talking about walking in wisdom and speaking in a way towards outsiders, evangelism. So the connection is not in the imperatives. The connection is in a subordinate idea. But I just wanted to be fair and tell you that so that you'll know how to read your Bibles. Okay? Now, point number two, how to live as a witness for Christ locally. So I am making the connection okay, through a subordinate means. How to live as a witness of Christ locally. How our global prayers have a connection to our local living. Now, notice verse 5. Verse 5, it says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So first is walk. Second is let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. That's your talk, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, in verse 5, when it speaks of our walk, this is a metaphor, like walk the walk. It's a metaphor for your behavior, your lifestyle. You've heard the phrase talk the talk as well. And so verse 6 speaks of our talk and our speech. The verb walk is an imperative. And so once again, this is a command to live in a certain way. And Paul goes on to tell us how to live. First, he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Now, an outsider is not somebody who's outside. This is a non-Christian. That's all he's saying. He's saying, be a good witness in how you live, in how you walk. Paul's speaking of how our lives must be a witness to the non-Christian. But notice that he says in wisdom. Not, he doesn't say in knowledge or information. You see, there's a difference between knowledge versus wisdom. Knowledge is knowing, in a biblical sense, truth. 
and principles. Wisdom is knowing when to best apply that knowledge. You see someone's in sin. You see eventually that it's going to lead to their destruction. You need to decide. You know what to say. Are you the best person to confront them? How do you confront them? What do you, you know the knowledge. You need what? Wisdom. Wisdom pertains to decision-making. When you have three or four true options, which option is the best for the occasion or context? And so when you're talking about the non-Christian, when they, when they see your life, do they see you consistently living with wisdom, good decision-making, and good priorities in life? Right? And so the outsider sees you. The context here gives more definition to the wisdom. And he says, notice it says, making the best use of time. Now this word time in the original is not chronos, it's kairos. It's not chronological time, so it's not 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, but, or one day, two day, three day, but it's talking about appointed time, God's time, meaning make the best use of your time now. So I like to use the word priorities. How are you prioritizing your time as individuals and how are we prioritizing our ministries as a church? And this is where how we pray for Ukraine does impact us. Like I said, we have resources, we have freedom, we have facilities, we have people. We, we have a building coming after covid and the pandemic, we don't deserve that. That's a God's gift to us. How will we utilize it? Our numbers have gone down. We're not overcapacitated now. And we have all this extra space. How are we going to steward it in community outreach? Let me say a word about the community outreach. The community outreach is not just, as PT said, a children's ministry or a youth ministry. In fact, the Cantonese core team will talk about it. And they're, gonna they're considering night classes for some of the parents or some other events that are happening that some of the immigrant parents or retired grandparents who bring their kids. There might be some Chinese-speaking ministry. The Mandarin's going to meet and discuss what they can do for adults. English core team's going to meet and consider, you know, but most of our resources are into the English-speaking children's ministry and basketball, basketball camp in the tutorial, but we, there's other things that are coming. This is an entire church-wide outreach. And if any of these ministries, if God shows us that it's fruitful and effective, we will reproduce it beyond that week. But we want to make it very clear that our entire church sees that if the Ukrainians are proclaiming the gospel under dis distress, that we in our freedom, how much more should we prioritize our resources towards preaching the gospel and looking at our, our priorities? And so that's where how we pray globally. And if all of you are praying for Afghanistan, Ukraine, and the world, Mongolia, you know, all the places, Taiwan, wherever you're praying for, when we cast a vision to you for community outreach, your heart will already be aligned. So for some of you, it will be giving of resources, of money. Some of you will be giving of your time. You know, others of you, it'll be different ways that you can serve. But together, we all have to be praying. 
Now, as a, as a church, we also have to have the right speech, the right, and as individuals, we need to have the right speech. So how do we live? Well, it's our walk, but secondly, our talk. Notice verse 6 now. Let your speech always be gracious. So, like I said, a lot of, I've made this mistake. I know a lot of Christians who know a lot of truth, but are not always gracious in how we speak the truth. And we know the classic command, speak the truth in love, right? Let your speech always be gracious, especially to the non-Christian. How do we let our speech be gracious? And he says, season with salt. Some of you guys don't like salt. And this is not the metaphor, why are you so salty? But this is salt in a good way. Yesterday, I had some solongtang. Some of you, that's Korean for this broth and um, it's bland, it's good. Um, I'm not Korean, but a lot of people think I am. Um, and you need to put salt in it to season it, uh, to, to add flavor. And so when, when you're thinking of let your speech be gracious and season with salt, it's talking about being winsome. There are ways that we can speak the gospel to non-Christians. There are ways where we can speak to the unbeliever. And if we can be winsome... Rather than, so I can go to someone and say, hey, you're going to hell. And, and this person's not a believer. They don't understand. I say, your lifestyle's damning you. I, I can speak that way, and, th- and they're not listening. Or I can say to my, my kids, if they're rebelling, are you filled with Satan, you know, kind of thing. I, I can do that. I can do that. But that's not seasoned with salt. I'm not going to win them. I'm not going to win them. I might be speaking truth, but with the wrong heart. But what if I can be winsome? And I can pray, Lord, help me be winsome, and maybe you can use me to win some to Christ. Right? So this is talking about let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You need wisdom because different people are going to ask you different things about the Christian life or what you believe or why you act or live in a certain way, and you need God's wisdom. Right? So, so, so that's pretty clear in terms of what he's saying. He's talking about wise living. Now, wise living and winsome speaking comes with Christian maturity. Recently, my heart has uh, been growing in, in deeper love for those of you. I, I mean, I love all of you. Don't get me wrong. I don't discriminate. But you know, for those of you who are 50 plus... Uh, maybe it's because, you know, I've been praying and shepherding and some of you have lost your loved ones uh, and, and some have uh, went home to be with the Lord. And uh, I, I think it hit me pretty hard when some of my, one of my Sunday school teachers, you know, passed away, right, with, with Uncle George way sooner than I thought. And I began to see something that, that all of us can know God's word but I can't help it that at 40 years old and even 30 years old, like I knew a lot of theology and I knew how to apply certain things, but I haven't lived long enough where the word naturally, it, it takes its time. The longer you live in Christ, the, 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 long, the, the more the word takes flesh in your heart. And so it makes sense that when you're 50 or 60, your priorities kind of, for some of you, your priorities change. And, and you notice this when people my age, um, 40 or under, and sometimes things get really stressful and we get stressed out. 
I'm not saying that if you're 50 or 60, you don't have stress, but I see something different. I see, I pray for people with cancer or disease and you praise God. I, I see when, when the pandemic happened, the 50 plus, you're not as shaken. Some of you, it's like, wake up, wake up. No, no, but, but no, it's, it's for many of you, it's not as shaken. The word of God has done its work. Colossians 3.16 says, let the words of Christ dwell in your heart richly. And, and that's when, you know, I'm the kind of preacher that screams a lot. And if you notice, I'm trying to control myself. Um, I think the Lord was speaking to me saying, you don't have to bring a hammer with the 50 plus. You just need to put the word forward. Because the word for some of you, BSF people, you've been studying all your life and now you just need a little bit. And, and the word just comes alive. And obviously, if you're younger, the word can still come alive. But that's the difference between knowledge and wise living. It takes time. Winsome speaking is not just taking an apologetics class, because that'll teach you how to argue. But it's living long enough. You know, sometimes when Pastor Albert says things, and I'm like, why can't I speak like him? Like, he'll say something, and then he'll say it with a smile. But he's telling you, you need to align with something, you know? We need to go out the floor. But he says it with a smile. He's always smiling. And I'm like, I need to learn from him. He's wise. He walks into a tense situation. He, 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 he lightens, you know, you know, makes a joke about himself. I'm watching you, Pastor Albert. Right? So everyone's like, okay. You're disarmed. And then he says it with a smile. And I'm like, if, I, if it was me, I'd be up there, open your Bibles. <laughs> and you look at this like I'm constipated in my face, right? <laughs> and of course you're not listening to me. And, and that's the difference between someone with wisdom and knowledge and experience. And I long to learn that from many of you. I want, I, not the speaking part, but just in wise living, I thought of Abraham. I was talking with Gabe this week, and I was thinking of and praying for some of you 50 plus, uh, and Take heart because Abraham was much older <laughs> and God used him. And he didn't have the medical technology of our day. But um, Abraham, he, wisdom, Proverbs tells us, begins with the fear of the Lord and trusting in God. Abraham's the guy who he trusts in God's promise. Yet when he came under pressure, he lied twice. So he trusts God, but he and he leaves his home. And so, so there's moments where he's like, yeah, I'm going to trust you, God. You're calling me to leave my home, and you're giving me this promise. I'm going to trust you. And then he lies twice to save his own life. Basically, when he goes into this foreign land, he knows his wife is really beautiful, and he thinks that they're going to kill him if he says this is his wife. So he lies twice that Sarah is his sister. Twice. He doesn't trust God. And then God promises him that he's going to have a child, even though his wife is barren and old in age. And rather than trusting God, he gives in to his wife. His wife says, let's not wait anymore. Here's my, my servant, Hagar. Go into her and have an illegitimate child. So there you have a man who, there's moments where he trusts God, but he makes these unwise decisions that come with consequences. Hagar's heart is broken. Ishmael's life is difficult. And Ishmael's people eventually come and they don't get along with Israel. 
And so there are consequences to unwise decisions, even for the saints who trust in God. But then, but then God says, I want you to take Isaac, Isaac's a teenager, most believe, or young man, and I want you to take him and kill him. I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham just believes. What happened? You know what happened? I did the math, and according to Jewish sources, Abraham had been following God for approximately 60 years of his life. It took 60 years of his life for him to be wise. And here's how amazing Abraham was as a prototypical Christian. Hebrews 11 tells us that when God told him to sacrifice his son, that he actually believed that God would raise Isaac back from the dead. He believed that God could raise his son. He believed in resurrection. He, he's just like, yeah, I'll, I'll sacrifice Isaac because you'll raise him from the dead. That's what it says in Hebrews 11. So you have a man who has faith and potential. He makes unwise decisions with consequences, but towards the end of his life, God puts him in the incredible moment of testing and he's wise and his faith is instant because the promise had taken root trusting God's word had taken on flesh in his heart and Abraham had no doubt that God was good so in conclusion for us going into our 38th year we've gone through a COVID pandemic We've gone through political and social upheaval as a nation. Now we're witnessing this unjust and unnecessary war where lives are being slaughtered on both sides. Yet we have an opportunity to renew our focus and to steward our resources. The time is now. The two parts of the passage speak to our context most readily in watchful prayer and wise priorities. And that's what I'm calling you and me to. Christian brother or sister, friend, beloved, in our personal lives, will we commit ourselves to watchful prayer? Pray watchfully, pray continuously, and watch how God answers so that our agenda is aligned with God's agenda, so that when we come together, we are a people who are watchful in prayer. And then secondly, because of that, in your personal life, will you pray that God will allow you to set wise priorities? with your freedom to worship Him and be a Christian. And as we plan as a church, let's have wise priorities. What is wisest? What is best? Not what we've always done. Not what we could do. But what is wisest? What, what is the best use of our people, our time, our resources? Where can we make the most impact? And if we try basketball camp, and if it doesn't work, let's say, right? Maybe it doesn't not that many people come out. And then we realize that tutoring is really effective. Will we pour into that? Or vice versa. Tutoring doesn't work for us, but basketball ministry, it becomes evangelistic. Will we put resources into that and sacrifice and even give up our space and say, my ministry used to meet at this hour, but now we're going to cancel our ministry so this other ministry can flourish to reach more people. Stuff like that, where it leads people to fight. But we, we begin to think, what are the priorities? Where can we be wisest? Where does God want us the most? The big idea of this morning's message is Christ is supreme in our lives when we pray watchfully and witness 
wisely. When we pray watchfully and witness wisely. In other words, we elevate Christ to a place of preeminence in our lives. How? When we are devoted to continually praying with our eyes open to what God is doing in the world and in our lives. And when Christ is put on display in our lives as our witness, when we are wise in our walk and winsome in our talk, then Christ is made supreme to the outsider. And the individual and corporate application for you and me, I gave you already, is that watchful prayer for the global church leads to wise priorities for our lives and our local church. Yes, watchful prayer for evangelism does lead to wise priorities for evangelism. So pray for all the missionaries that you can. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for Christians who are suffering. And I guarantee you, if you just simply spend five minutes a day praying for Christians who are suffering, it, it will change you over time where you will care. If you're constantly devoting five minutes every morning praying that God would open the door for people to share the gospel in Ukraine or Afghanistan, you will certainly look for opportunities to contribute to sharing the gospel in your own life and in your church. There's just no way that if you're devoting five minutes every day at the minimum to pray and getting updates and emails on how to pray, that it won't change your life as well. And the next time we say, let's do this outreach event, you will say, we're on board. Let's, let's do it. Let's mobilize the youth, mobilize our workers, and let's do it. And let's reach our community for the glory of the gospel of Christ. And in that way, we become a vibrant church that reproduces vibrant churches global, locally and globally. Pray with me, please. Father, we come to you in our freedom and we celebrate, Lord, our 37th anniversary and we look to your 38th and we pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be wise in stewarding our priorities and our ministries for the sake of the glory of the gospel. And in our lives, Lord, help us to walk wisely and to talk winsomely so that outsiders, non-Christians would see the supremacy of Christ as ultimately wise. And Father, we remember Ukraine. Help us to pray globally, struggling, agonizing like Epaphras, Lord, for those who are suffering, that you would open the door for the gospel. We pray for our Ukrainian Christians and those in Russia Lord, we pray, Lord, that they would stand mature in Christ and that you will make it clear to them that this is the will of God and that you would guide them and uphold them, open doors for the gospel so the hope of eternal life would spread in a place where they are seeing death. Give them life and the hope of Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.